Sefer Vayikra, Parshat Achremot, on intimacy and dignity for gay men. A brief trigger warning. Parshat Achremot contains a verse that has been used to cause and continues to be used to cause an extraordinary amount of pain and anxiety for LGBTQ people. Nevertheless, with this series being a social justice exploration of the weekly Parsha, I believe it is a verse that we should try to address for those who are ready so that those looking for it can ideally find some guidance and strategies for navigating Torah in their own lives. Near the end of the Parsha, it says in Leviticus chapter 18, do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. It is an abhorrence. How can an observant Jew hear this year after year in this Torah reading and not feel alienated or afraid? First, I want to make clear that there's absolutely no Torah prohibition or Torah-rooted stigma against the identity of gay individuals. This verse does not address identity, and it does not even address desire. The Torah merely prohibits one specific act, and it is speaking strictly about men. The Torah itself says nothing about acts between women as such. And still, this brings up a serious dilemma. What are observant Jewish gay men to do if they take the Torah seriously? One commonly proposed solution is for the man to simply hide his desire and marry a woman. This should, of course, be rejected. It's not fair to the woman, and it does immeasurable damage to the man as well. A fundamentalist might also suggest that the gay person live a life of celibacy and aloneness. We know that this is also not tenable, as it goes against the deep value of human intimacy. As the Torah says in the beginning, in its second chapter, it's not good for man to be alone. One more humane path that people pursue is having a partner, but avoiding the one specific Torah prohibition. There are rabbinic laws regarding other forms of intimacy beyond the biblical verse, and these challenges can then be negotiated as a couple rather than taking on a loan. This is by no means a perfect solution, but it is within the realm of options. A fourth approach a person can take is to have a fully intimate life with a partner accepting the prohibition, but also holding the interpretation that other Torah values mitigate the severity of not being able to follow this one. As we've said, the Torah was not given to be a source of loneliness. And in the same chapter, Leviticus 18, God says, you shall keep my laws and my rules by the pursuit of which human beings shall live. I am the Lord. From here, the Jewish tradition gets the principle of pikuach nefesh, that because Torah is life-giving, preserving life takes precedence over almost all individual commandments. There is the further Torah principle of ones rachmana patri, that if an obstacle prevents a person fulfilling a commandment, God, who is compassionate and merciful, will exempt them. Rabbi Dr. Yitz Greenberg explained, we now know that there is a genetic hormonal basis for same-sex desire. Therefore, this cannot be treated as an expression of perverse desire by men capable of heterosexual fulfillment who choose same-sex because they want power, not relationship, or promiscuity, not relationship, or who do not want family. I assume that these are the reasons that the Torah opposed condemned male homosexuality. While I in the Orthodox world would try to help anyone who asks to live with a partner in one of the ways mentioned earlier, there are also those who have reinterpreted the prohibition through contextualization 
or legal maneuvering, things that are perfectly valid in the history of the Jewish tradition. For example, the verse may have been written in a specific time period in which gay sex was often used as a form of abuse or violence, such as with a teacher and a young male student. The Torah is not referring, many argue, to a loving relationship between consenting adults. Another reading could be that the Torah specifically says, do not lie with a male as one lies with a woman. This could mean that gay sex is prohibited for men who are attracted to women, but it would not apply to homosexual men. Further contextualization might indicate that one historical problem with gay sex is that there's also a Torah prohibition for men to procreate. But today we have alternate means of family building, such as sperm donation to a surrogate or adoption. Today in our highly populated world, we can wonder whether the need for humanity to fill the earth requires a net increase in babies, or whether it's equally crucial for adoptive and foster parents to care for the children who have already been born. I know that no approach to this is perfect. And for that reason, I'm not advising a particular one universally. Each of us is made uniquely in the image of God, and as such, we have different human needs and different religious orientations. This is a conversation to be had in consultation with qualified counselors and with a rabbi, perhaps, one has as an individual trusting relationship with. I just deeply hope that people will know that there are options out there, and LGBTQ Jews and the entire religious world needs to be aware of them. So too. I know that this is not a subject that is sufficiently explored as a purely theoretical and legal matter. One's sexual identity is deeply central to one's sense of self. And given decades of marginalization many have experienced, no understanding of the Torah text will be enough to heal the community. Enabling that healing in large part needs to be the responsibility of allies. In addition to being loving and supportive, Allies need to stay out of people's bedrooms. Just as we don't ask which families observe the laws of ritual purity in their male-female marriages, and we understand their homes to be private realms, we need to give LGBTQ people the same right to privacy. In this respect, I'm inspired by Numbers 24-5, which we repeat daily in the morning prayers. How fair are your tents, O Jacob? your dwellings, O Israel. These tents in the Israelites' camp provided not only security, but privacy. Rashi cites the Talmud in Bava Batra 60a. The Gemara explains, what was it that Bilaam saw that so inspired him? He saw that the entrances of their tents were not aligned with each other, ensuring that each family enjoyed a measure of privacy. And he said, if this is the case, these people are worthy of having the divine presence rest on them. Many of us in the Jewish community have done a shameful job of not allowing someone's sexual orientation to dictate their communal standing and treatment. It is our obligation to ensure that our synagogues and communal institutions are safe spaces worthy of having the divine presence rest on them. This issue has come to the forefront in 2022 when Yeshiva University has gone as far as the New York State Supreme Court, hoping to shut down its Pride Alliance student organization. An anonymous gay YU student in an article titled, Why Do Gay Students Go to YU Anyways? ran in the YU commentator. 
many gay yeshiva university students are not publicly queer Jews, but instead have a gay identity so far hidden from the outside world, it is known only to a half dozen prized and trusted confidants. It is a terrifying and awful way to exist, having to constantly hide this part of yourself to evade bullying, homelessness, and hate. Yeshiva University can do better for us. It can lead the way towards a brighter future for Judaism, one where gay Jews, such as myself, do not have to exist in doubt and fear or face discrimination. We must do that within our communities. And on the outside, we need to, as progenitors of Torah values, advocate for the equality and security of all LGBTQ people. We are tasked with fixing a toxic and dangerous culture among ourselves and in the world, end quote. When we read Parshat Mot, I hope we're all reminded of the pain our community members have experienced and continue to experience. And I hope we all hear the call to stand in solidarity with them. Friends, as a double Parsha this week, we're now going to comment on Parshat Kedoshim on preserving diversity. Parshat Kedoshim covers some of the Torah's most famous laws, including the back-to-back, you shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against members of your people, and love your fellow as yourself. I am the Lord. The very next verse, though, takes us from the general and understandable to the perplexing and extremely specific. The Torah tells us, You shall observe my laws. You shall not let your cattle mate with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not put on cloth from a mixture of two kinds of material. What exactly is going on here? Well, we see three different kinds of prohibitions against three different kinds of mixing, cattle species, seeds, and clothing materials. In the area of seeds, Maimonides takes this to be a targeted and technical law, not something indicative of a universal principle. He explains in Sefer Mitzvot, God prohibited us from planting forbidden mixtures. And the planting of these forbidden mixtures is only forbidden in the land of Israel. But it is permissible outside of the land of Israel. He elaborates in the Mishnah Torah. The prohibition against mixed species of seeds involves only plants that are fit for human consumption. Grasses that are bitter and similar roots that are fit only for medicinal purposes and the like are not included in the prohibition against mixtures of seeds. Today, Discussion of this verse goes beyond the mixing of seeds, and the question is opened as to whether changing a species' DNA, for example, to produce genetically modified food is permissible. In this responsum, we've discovered many causes for concern with genetic engineering, whether from a theological sense of humility toward the Creator, an imperative to observe the mitzvah of kelayim, or worries about the safety of GMOs. Each of these concerns has practical applications. Nevertheless, we have not established a general prohibition on the genetic modification of DNA in plants, animals, or indeed in humans. What modern methods of genetic engineering are not are not di- directly comparable to the actions forbidden as Kalayim by the Bible and rabbinic literature, since re- recombinant DNA generally includes just snippets 
of foreign genomes that function as widgets in their recipient. Rashi says that these commandments, unlike the ones in the previous verse, are enactments of the sovereign for which no reason is given. They don't make much sense, and yet they are also passed down among the 613 commandments in the Torah. Nachmanides, however, is not satisfied with Rashi's view. He says that even though the Torah doesn't explicitly say so, the commandments are given for the purpose of teaching us not to try to alter God's creations. He writes, Now the reason for the prohibitions against Kilayim is that God has created in the world various species among all living things, both plants and moving creatures, and God gave them a power of reproduction, enabling them to exist forever, as long as the Holy One be blessed, will desire the existence of the world. And God further endowed them with a power to bring forth only after their kind, and that they should never be changed, as it is said with reference to all of them at the time of creation. Thus, one who combines two different species thereby changes and defies the work of creation, as if they are thinking that the Holy One be blessed has not completely perfected the world, and they desire to help along in the creation of the world by adding to it new kinds of creatures. Modern rabbis as well have insisted on these three commandments from our verse having a reason and practical relevance. Rav Kook and Rav Shimshon Rafal Hirsch were in agreement that the forbidding of mixing seeds is an anti-extinction measure for the conservation of a natural order of diversity. This view is not just rational, but also mystical. The Zohar explains that the commandment is given because every plant has a unique heavenly purpose. It says, All the plants in the earth, which have placed over them great forces in the heavens, each and every one is a mystery alone, of its own like the pattern above. And because of this, it's written, Your field you will not sow with mixtures, kilayim, for each and every one goes up alone and emerges alone. We learn from the commandments about how we are to take care of and preserve the diversity of plants and animals, that there is enormous responsibility being humans and being humans charged with caring for the earth. One of the first tasks Adam is given in Genesis chapter 2 is to till the Garden of Eden and protect it. Plants exist on earth to our benefit. But that comes with the responsibility of being the ones to preserve them. And in our time of climate change, maintaining the ethic of the Zohar and Nachmanides requires that the destruction of species doesn't arise from human harm, and it requires mitigating the damage that's already been done. The, the Q Royal Botanic Gardens 2020 State of the World's Plants and Fungi Report estimated that 40% of Earth's plants are at risk of extinction. Rabbi Dr. Julia Watts-Belzer highlights how the importance of protecting plants that nourish us is reflected all the way back in Torah times. She writes, When the Israelites come forth from the stark desert wilderness into the land they have been promised, their loyalty and fidelity to God will ensure the abundance of the earth and the fluid generosity of the heavens. Deuteronomy figures rain as God's gift to, to the land and those who live upon it a gift that blossoms into grain and grapes and seed that nourishes the wild grasses of the field. The land, the herds, and humans alike drink from heaven's bounty. Their food, their satisfaction, their very survival rests on rain. Disobedience brings drought, and drought is death. 
And so while the commandment against mixing seeds is not one that most of us find overwhelmingly meaningful and is one that even Rashi struggled to understand, we know in our time that our survival and the survival of creation are inextricably intertwined. As we'll see in the coming decades, the task of taking care of creation is not one we should have been neglecting. Shabbat Shalom.